Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 38 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about how we caught the Golden State Killer. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, and that we is sort of the royal we. Uh, I, yeah, neither we, you or society, I the authorities. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So what are we talking about? Who's the Golden State Killer? So one year ago this week, authorities announced that they had arrested a man for the crimes of the Golden State Killer. This week, obviously, as we released the podcast, if convicted, and he's not yet been tried and convicted, but if convicted, this would bring closure to one of the longest unsolved series of crimes in California history. What's more, it seems that we've caught the Golden State Killer using an entirely new method, which is very interesting. It, it's never been done before, but it's already being used to solve other cases, making it harder for perpetrators to get away with their crimes and easier to bring justice for the victims. And that's why we're going to be talking about how we caught the Golden State Killer on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, before we begin, uh, we should probably allay some fears and provide some, yeah. dis uh, some disclaimers about our subject matter. Right. So the first disclaimer is we're not going to be getting graphic here. Whenever we've discussed mysterious deaths previously on the show, like JFK or Dyatlov Pass or Jimmy Hoffa, we've we, you know we've stated the facts. You know these people died or were killed, but we we don't go into gruesome details. So we we will mention what the Golden State Killer did, but we will not be getting graphic about it. We're going to keep it clinical and uh, and you know. Don't want to don't want to dwell on details. We don't need to just the facts, ma'am, as Joe Friday would say. Right. We will mention that his crimes include murder and rape and, and other things like that. And if those are still yet sensitive for some of those around you, uh, maybe listen to it another time. Then, But we just want you to know yeah. ahead of time. But we won't be describing any of what happened in those crimes. No, we will not get down into the details. The, the second disclaimer that I wanted to make is that, as you mentioned, Dom, he hasn't yet been convicted, and so he enjoys the legal presumption of innocence. And I honor that. He's legally innocent until the contrary is proved. Consequently, when in this episode we talk about how he, how the Golden State Killer has been caught, that's to be understood as according to the authorities who has who have charged him with these crimes, he has been caught. They say they've caught him. We just won't be repeating that qualifier every single time because it would get really tedious. Right. The news media, in, when they, they do uh, crime stories, will always use allegedly, according to authorities. But we don't want you to understand that throughout this, that we're always mean this is alleged, this is not yet tried and convicted. Right. Let's start by talking about three California criminals that the authorities began investigating in different towns throughout the state in different years, over different periods of time. Jimmy, what can you tell us about the first criminal? Well, the first criminal began his activities, at least as far as we know, in March of 1974 in a town uh, called Visalia, California. Visalia is a farming community. It's in the San Joaquin Valley where a lot of America's food is grown. Um, it's kind of midway between Los Angeles and San Francisco, but it's further inland. Those are coastal cities, and this is farther inland. And back in 1974, about 30,000 people lived in Visalia. Uh, this criminal would break into people's houses, usually when the owners were not home, and he'd ransack them. He'd just go through their belongings, toss everything around. And so he became known as the Visalia Ransacker. Uh, he would uh, mess up people's property. He seemed to have a special interest in women's underwear. Uh, he would also take small, unimportant items as souvenirs, things like coins from piggy banks or a single earring out of a pair of earrings or blue chip stamps, which were like saving stamps where you could you know, save them up from when you purchase stuff and get a toaster later or something. Um, he would steal cufflinks, things like that, but he would ignore higher value items. So these just seem to be souvenirs he was taking. He did. 
show signs of being what police refer to as criminally sophisticated. Um, he would wear a ski mask so people couldn't see his face. And he w- apparently wore gloves because he never left fingerprints. He also seemed to have multiple escape routes planned from each house. And what's kind of striking about the Visalia Ransacker is how often he struck. So he started in March of 74. And by December of 75, so less than two years later, he had struck 100 houses. So that's like a break in every three or four days in Visalia on average. Um, Except that's an average. They actually came in clumps. And for example, on Friday, November 29th of 1974, he hit five houses in one day. And even more amazing, the next day, Saturday, November 30th, he hit 13 houses in one day. That's remarkable, given that it's like you said, it's a relatively small town for him to be able to freely get in and out of these houses over that small period of time when especially when people would might be on alert, given that it's mm-hmm. or the police might be on alert. So what did the police right. make of this uh, Visalia ransacker? Well, at first they thought he was just like a nuisance weirdo, uh, probably a young guy in his teens or early 20s who was, you know, being driven by hormones and youthful foolishness uh, as he committed these crimes. But his crime started to take a darker turn because in addition to the little souvenir items he would take, he also started to steal weapons that he found in in the homes. Um on September 11th of 75, this is towards the end of his career, um, the Visalia ransacker apparently broke into a house of a journalism professor and tried to kidnap his daughter. So this is an escalation from just the ransacking. He tried to kidnap the daughter. The professor ran out and confronted the ransacker who was wearing the ski mask. He did rescue his daughter. Um, But the ransacker shot him and he died. The ransacker then fled, uh, leaving behind a stolen bicycle. A couple months later, on December 12th of 75, the ransacker entered the backyard of a house, but a police detective named William McGowan was on stakeout in the garage because this guy had been, you know, offending so frequently. They really were on the lookout for him. They had a stakeout in this house. So McGowan comes out of the garage. The ransacker pretended to surrender and took off his mask, but he then pulled a gun and tried to shoot McGowan. He missed, but he was able to escape. Uh, Based on this and previous incidents, the police were able to get a sketch of him because he took off his mask in front of McGowan. And he was determined to be a white male, about five foot, 10 inches tall, around 190 pounds, and he wore size nine shoes which they knew because of footprints he left. Unfortunately, this uh, information didn't do him much good because the ransacker stopped committing his crimes at this point. And those statistics pretty much describe, you know, 50 percent of uh, men in California that, you know, that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So it was not a, uh, a great description. Okay, so who was the second criminal that we're going to talk about? Well, for our second criminal, we need to move up the coast from the San Joaquin Valley and go to the Bay Area around San Francisco. Uh, Specifically, we need to go to Sacramento County, which is the home of the state capital. Uh, We also move forward in time to June of 1976, when our second criminal broke into a home in Rancho Cordova and committed a rape. He then went on to commit 50 other crimes in just over three years. Uh, This means that he committed one rape about every three weeks. So not nearly as frequent as the ransacker. The ransacker was a crime every three or four days. This guy is a crime every three weeks or so. Because uh, his crimes occurred east of the city of Sacramento, he became known as the East Area Rapist or the EAR or EAR. What did the police make of this criminal? Well, they took him a lot more seriously than they did the Visalia ransacker because, you know, rape is a much more serious crime. They also recognized they were dealing with someone who was very criminally sophisticated. Uh, He wore a ski mask and gloves. He would talk to people only in a harsh whisper, 
to disguise his voice. So he wasn't talking in his normal voice to people. Sort of like Christian Bale as Batman, to, to, to yeah. use a, an example yeah. that people might remember. Okay. Exactly. And I don't want to imitate anything he might say because it would just be creepy. But he would he would whisper to disguise his voice. He would do extensive reconnaissance on his victims ahead of time, including doing hang up calls to figure out when they were going to be home. You know, he'd get a, a understanding of their daily habits. This is something you could do back in the days of landlines when nobody had a cell phone, because today people have their cell phone. They either pick up or they don't. It doesn't tell you anything about whether they're home or not. And also before the general use of answering machines, so that if the phone rang and rang and rang, you just assume that no one was home. Exactly. Yeah. He also, as part of his criminal sophistication, when he would be committing one of his crimes, at times he seemed to feed his victims false information to throw them off. So they would like tell the police things about him that were wrong. So he would refer to, for example, having a van outside when, in fact, he was known to use bicycles that he had stolen. Um, he also at times referred to having a partner, um, even though he seemed to operate alone, at least most of the time, although there are a few instances where someone thought they might have heard an, a second person. Initially, he targeted women who were living alone or who were home alone with children. But he was criticized for this in the newspapers. It was like, this guy doesn't have the guts to attack a house where there's a man there to defend you know, the home. And so he switched his methodology and he started attacking homes where there was a couple. He would What he would do is he would break in. He would have the woman tie the man up. And then on on his on his lying on his stomach and then he would go to the kitchen and get like cups and plates and put them on the man's back as a kind of makeshift alarm system and say, if I hear these things clink, I'm going to do bad stuff or even worse stuff than I otherwise am going to do. And so he would incapacitate the man in this way before going on to commit his crime. He would then, after after the rape, he would spend a long time in the house. He would go to the kitchen and eat stuff out of the fridge. He would rummage through people's belongings, and then he'd finally go away. But the the because of how long he took to do all this, the couple didn't know when he left. And so that's part of the criminal sophistication, too. It's not like they hear him leave. And then they immediately call the police. So he's still in the area when the cops come. Uh, they have they have no idea when he left because he would periodically come back and it would stretch over a period of hours before he finally left. And they had no idea when that was. So it was a way of facilitating his getaway. He also would steal little small items as souvenirs, which is a common thing that a lot of psychopaths actually do. So you would spend a lot of time with these people, a lot, a, you know, a lot of victims. So with all of these witnesses, what what kind of information did the police get about this this criminal? Well, a lot of people did see him and some people saw him without the mask, including uh, several occasions where he got chased out of houses. Uh, he wasn't always successful. And as a result, the police were able to get good sketches of him. And he appeared to have either light brown or blonde hair. They also got because of the nature of his crimes, they got biological samples. Unfortunately, this being the mid-1970s, mid to late-1970s, there was no DNA technology. There was blood typing technology, but it didn't really help the police because it turns out about 20% of people are what are called non-secretors. And that means that their blood marker information, although it shows up in their blood, it doesn't show up in other bodily secretions. And the 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 East Area Rapist turned out to be a non-secretor. So even though they had biological samples, they couldn't tell what his blood type was as a result of that. They also, and, and they didn't know what to make of this because of his propensity to feed false information to people, but he would act weird during some of these crimes. He would weep at times and he would say things like i hate you bonnie 
And so they didn't know if there's someone in this guy's past named Bonnie or is that just part of the misdirection? His crimes. Did he only commit rapes and the petty theft or were there other things that he was doing as well? Well, they the police began to be worried about progression, that he was going to progress to another level as a criminal because some of his victims reported him ideating out loud about murder. And it's like he was starting to to talk himself towards murder. He apparently did kill a couple that were out walking their dog in February of 1978. Uh, they ran away, but he shot them. Uh, so that was actually not a break in, but the police believe it was the same guy. His last crime was committed in July of 1979 in Danville in Contra Costa County. He also, and then after that, he dropped off the map. And whenever a criminal stops his activity, there's always a question of what happened to him. You know, did he cease committing the crimes? Did he move? Did he get arrested and jailed? For something uh, else. For uh, something uh, else. Yeah. Did did he die? You know, there's always a question, is this guy still out there? Well, in this case, they uh, they did get evidence that he was still out there. Pre-caller ID, and a lot of this took place through phone calls. Now, before we had caller ID, a lot of criminals would call hotlines or news channels or police stations and claim to be criminals. And frequently they were they were hoaxes. It was just people wanting attention and to jerk someone's chain. There's a famous example of that when the Zodiac killer was committing his crimes uh, a few years before this. Uh, they had like a late night TV call in show where someone called in claiming to be the Zodiac killer. But it's been concluded now it wasn't the guy. This was just someone pretending. And people could kind of get away with that before caller ID. but. In this era, the late 70s, there was no caller ID. And so the East Area Rapist would call his victims and taunt them. And even though he had used a disguised voice when he committed his crimes, they still recognized this is him. He's talking the same way. This is the same guy. And, for example, on January 2nd of 1978, he called a prior victim and taunted her by whispering, gonna kill you. Uh, several times. He also called her offensive terms. And this was recorded. So actually, and we're not going to play it here on the air because it's creepy, but it, it, it will be in the further resources if you want to listen to this, um, because it's it's out there. It's on YouTube. The FBI has a recording of this that they put out there in hopes the public could maybe recognize his disguised voice as someone they knew. But because of these calls, uh, these calls continued even after he stopped committing his crimes. Uh, for example, in 1991, he called a former victim and she said she could hear children playing in the background. So he was like calling from a home that where children were playing. As late as April of 2001, he called another former victim and said, remember when we played? And so this is, you know, this is over two decades after he stopped committing his crime. So they knew as late as 2001, he was still out there. So that's the first two criminals. Who is our third criminal? So for the third criminal, we would, now the first criminal was in the San Joaquin Valley in Visalia. Then we moved up to the Bay Area for the East Area Rapist. Now we need to go down the coast several hundred miles to Southern California. And we move forward in time to October of 1979. There, a third criminal began to be active in three counties, uh, Santa Barbara, Ventura, and Orange County. On October 1st of 79, he entered a home in Galetta and tied up a couple. And when they heard him start saying to himself, I'll kill him, like he's talking himself up to a murder, they panicked and tried to escape. The woman screamed loud enough for neighbors to hear. And the two got away. The woman uh, went out the front door. The man went out the back door. The the criminal, therefore, lost control of the situation. He decided to flee on a bicycle. But a neighbor who was an FBI agent heard the scream and came out and started chasing the guy. But he ultimately got away. 
that that's actually a good point. I can see that if if you're in a situation, one go out the front, one go out the back, and there's one bad guy that doubles your your, your odds of one of you getting away. He, he can't yeah. chase you both. Uh, that, that was a very uh, smart uh, tactic. Right. And it, it actually more than doubles it because it's he's going to be confused for a moment. And that gives both of you a chance to get even farther away and maybe find a place to hide. So then later the same year, so on December 30th, he broke into another home. He tied up a couple and the man attacked him on this occasion. But he shot them both and they died. He then stole a bicycle from a neighboring residence and fled. In the next two years, so 1980 and 81, uh, this criminal broke into four more residences and killed seven more people, usually couples, uh, either shooting them or bludgeoning them, usually with them being tied up and with the women sometimes being raped. Originally, people in this area called the criminal the Night Stalker. Now, you may be familiar with that term. Because a few years later, there was another man named Richard Ramirez who committed a series of crimes and also became known as the Night Stalker. But he's a different guy. And so after Richard Ramirez committed his crimes, our third criminal came to be known as the original Night Stalker or the ONS. Uh, then in, after 1981, he stopped committing his crimes. So he was only active for a couple of years. Except in 1986, he killed one more person in Orange County. So it's like just a blip. Five years later, he does one more and that's it. You know, it, it makes me think like all of these names, which presumably are, are, are given by the media as in their coverage. Or the police. Uh, sometimes we, we don't do that much anymore. Uh, the, the, the media or I mean, some, if there's a criminal, who maybe someone who's committed a series of crimes, they'll refer to it. But. But there's a bit of celebrity that we're kind of putting on people like that. And I think that maybe that uh, uh, as a society, we've we've decided we need to kind of stop making celebrities out of these criminals mm -hmm. with these names. I just think that's interesting. I, I, I'd have to do some checking. I, certainly there aren't the famous ones like there used to be, like Son of Sam and stuff like that, or, or Zodiac or Jack the Ripper. So you don't have those names in pop culture the way you used to. But I they are still being given I, for some they tend to be locally known. Yeah. So like it, there's like a Long Island serial killer and stuff like that in, in, in on in Long Island and the people there, the local papers may refer to him or there may be an Outer Banks serial killer in the Outer Banks, but only the people there know about it. It's not big in pop culture the way it used to be. Yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll they'll use a shorthand, but yeah, it's not it's not like yeah. like this. So okay, so that was a bit of a tangent. So after this this uh, third criminal uh, was active, what did police make of this guy? Well, obviously they took him extremely seriously right from the beginning because of the seriousness of murder. They were surprised that he stopped and then restarted for a single crime years later. But because he only the first couple had any interaction with him and survived, they didn't get a lot of information about him. They only knew what the first couple knew and what they could figure out by looking at the crime scenes. Then what happened as the investigation progressed? Well, it progressed in kind of fits and starts. A lot of the crimes that the Visalia Ransacker and the East Area Rapist had committed had their statutes of limitations expire. And so nobody was really looking for these guys anymore. But police had different opinions. One guy in Sacramento proposed that the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker were the same guy because they had similar methodologies. They'd tie these people up. They would attack couples. They'd break into houses, they'd tie the people up, and then they'd do what they were going to do, sometimes including raping the woman. And so there was this guy who said, you know, maybe they're the same. They have similar MOs, similar modus operandi. But other police officers disputed this. They did look at a bunch of subjects uh, as guys who could be the EAR or the ONS some speculated based on the criminal sophistication they showed that these two guys might actually be police officers because they seemed really good at evading and planting false clues and things like that. 
And then in 2001, there was a major turning point. By this point, we had DNA technology and it showed the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker were the same guy. Now, this was hard to figure out because at the time, DNA technology wasn't where it is now. You know, this is almost 20 years ago. And they'd actually been sitting on this DNA for a while. They had a problem because since the statutes of limitations had expired on all of the rapes, the police were supposed to have thrown away the the biological samples from those cases. But this one guy who was researching it found them in a evidence storage warehouse. And apparently it was like they'd been exposed to a lot of heat. It wasn't air conditioned. They'd been sitting there for decades at this point. There there were rats that had gotten into into a lot of the evidence, uh, because if there's anything, if there's any food in there that has been seized for evidence, rats will go after it. And so it was it, it was very uncertain that there would be any DNA that had been retained or that it would be in a testable condition. And then it turned out that the Sacramento area and the uh, Southern California police departments that had the evidence from the two different sets of crimes didn't use the same DNA technology. And Sacramento had, if I recall correctly, had the more advanced technology, and they had to wait a couple of years for the other police department to catch up in terms of the testing it had available to it. But in 2001, it's like, nope, we got a match. These two guys are the same person. They also started uh, linking the Visalia ransackers crimes to the East Area Rapist based on the physical descriptions they'd gotten from witnesses because both of them had been seen with the mask off and the similarities of their modus operandi. They had similar height and weight. They both used ski masks. They stole trivial objects. They fled on bicycles. And so they had DNA evidence linking the EAR to the ONS and also to the Visalia modus operandi and witness evidence linking the Visalia ransacker to the EAR. And so they said, it looks like all three criminals are the same guy. And if that's the case, what we have is a criminal progression from a man going from being a ransacker with a fetish for women's underwear to becoming a rapist to becoming a rapist killer. And there were even hints of the transition happening. So you may remember one of the last things the ransacker did was try to kidnap a journalism professor's daughter, presumably for purposes of raping her. Uh, he, then as the East Area Rapist, they started hearing him ideating out loud about killing people. And so it, it looked like there was a, a smooth criminal progression here that's kind of obvious in hindsight, but at the time it wasn't obvious because these were different crimes being committed in different areas of a very big state at different times. And back then, police departments often didn't talk to each other a lot. In fact, it was kind of viewed as, well, if if we don't need your help, our our police department can handle the criminals in our area. It, it, we don't we don't need to mess. You know, it, thank you very much. We can handle our own st our own business. And so there there weren't these big there weren't these big, you know, statewide systems for sharing information the same way there are now. And, and if I recall correctly, the, the 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 science of criminal profiling was still fairly young, too, that, that sees these progressions and, and these sorts of things. If, if I, I'm not sure if I remember that correctly. Yeah. But, but it was still somewhat no, no, more no. primitive. It, 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 yes, uh, it, it was and is still an ongoing you know, process of refinement in that. But uh, you're right. The process of criminal profiling really had not. It was just being developed at this time. So what happened now that they have this DNA evidence that the criminals were the same? What what happened at that point? Well, the DNA in, involving this case, once they realized we have a killer's DNA, it changed California law. The brother of one of the victims supported. So in California, in addition to having a state legislature that can pass laws, we also have what are known as ballot initiatives. 
And a ballot initiative is where you set up a you put a proposal directly before the voters and the voters can vote yes or no. And it's a way of bypassing the state legislature. So when the state legislature, for whatever political reasons, doesn't have the will or the interest in doing something, the voters of California can take it upon themselves to just pass a law without the legislature. And so in 2004, there was a ballot initiative known as Proposition 69. It was supported by uh, a brother of one of the victims, and it passed. And what it did was it created a statewide database. So as of 2009, everyone in California who's arrested for a felony has to contribute their DNA to this database. And California now has the third largest DNA database in the world as a result. But unfortunately, this didn't, even though they they passed this law in hopes of catching the East Area Rapist slash one original Night Stalker or Eron's, as he was sometimes called in a kind of hyphenated for E-A-R slash O-N-S. They were hoping to catch Eron's with this, but apparently he never gave his DNA. So he would, had never been arrested for a felony, never otherwise gave it. Many people thought that he might have died off because now we're after the last phone call in 2001. And he, it's decades later. He, he could have gotten older. He could have died. Or maybe he moved on. But uh, but many people thought if he is still out there, it's only going to be a matter of time till we get him. One of the people who thought that was a crime writer named Michelle McNamara. And she started writing about the about the Eron's in 2013. Now, just a word about who she is. She, as I said, is a crime writer. She started writing uh, blogs and uh, magazine articles. She eventually wrote a book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark about the Golden State Killer. And that's where he got the name. It was from her because at the time people were calling him Eron's, which is very ungainly. So since he committed his crimes in California, the Golden State, she dubbed him the Golden State Killer and it caught on. So that's why he's called the Golden State Killer today. She also was the wife of a comedian and actor you may be familiar with named Patton Oswalt. If you've seen the revival series of Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix, Patton Oswalt is... TV's son of TV's Frank. So I know some folks in our audience are MST3K fans like I am. Well, TV's son of TV's Frank, his wife is the woman who named the Golden State Killer and wrote the, the most popular book about him. So she started working on this book called, as I said, it's called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Unfortunately, she died before it was completed. Uh, at age 46, she passed away in her sleep through an accidental overdose of prescription medication coupled with heart disease. And so she wasn't able to complete the book, but Patton Oswalt and others saw it through the press. They, they got it finished and it was published in February of 2018. So just over a year ago, it debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I read it in March of last year, and it's really good as a true crime book. She is a very talented author. I wish she had written more because she's a very talented true crime author. She uh, takes evidence very seriously. She has a really skilled ability to conjure the thought processes involved in catching a criminal and is very well written. Based on my reading of the book, so I read the book and the killer was still out there. But after reading the book, I said, they're going to catch this guy eventually. Even if he's dead, they're going to catch this guy. One way or another, this case is going to be solved and it's going to be solved by DNA. And the very next month, April, the authorities announced they'd got him. So how did they catch the Golden State Killer then? Well, McNamara predicted the exact method they would use. And I said, yes, this is going to do it. What she said was that it wouldn't be his DNA that would catch him it, because he's too smart to give that ever. 
but it'll be DNA from one of his relatives. Because everyone you're related to has DNA that is in varying degrees similar to you. And that means if you have a particular DNA marker, so will many of your relatives. And you're, even if you're smart enough not to put your DNA in a database, you're going to have relatives who don't know you're a serial killer, and they're going to put their DNA in a database. And so already in the book, uh, Michelle McNamara was talking about how investigators were uploading the DNA profiles they had of the Golden State Killer into public DNA databases. These are used by people like to find long lost relatives in cases of adoption or to research um, genealogical trees, you know, find out who you're related to and stuff like that. And so they were hoping that they would get a partial hit that had some of the markers they had for the Golden State Killer and it would identify a relative of his that they could then zero down and look at that family and find out who he was. And that's exactly what happened. And the story of it is told in an audiobook that Amazon slash Audible quickly did called Evil Has a Name. And it tells the story of exactly how the authorities did this. They talked to it's since it's an audiobook, they have all these interviews with the actual detectives who were involved in the process. Basically, in January of 2018, Detective Paul Holes uploaded the Golden State Killer's profile into GEDmatch or GEDmatch, which is a genealogy website. And they found distant relatives with the same great, great, great grandparents as the Golden State Killer. They then enlisted a genealogist to help them construct a family tree of all these people that had the partial match. And then they they looked at the people in the tree. They narrowed it down to two suspects who were the right age, lived in the right places, and could have been the Golden State Killer. They then eliminated one of the two suspects by another relative's DNA. That left a single guy named Joseph D'Angelo. On April 18th, they got a sample of D'Angelo's DNA off his car door handle. And uh, soon after, they got another DNA sample of his out of his trash. They matched the Golden State Killer's DNA. And on April 24th, one year ago this week, the authorities arrested Joseph D'Angelo and announced that they'd caught the Golden State Killer. Who is Joseph D'Angelo and what what do we know about him? Okay, so today he is 73 years old. He was born in New York State in 1945. a rather turbulent upbringing in some respects. When he was nine or 10, he apparently saw his seven-year-old sister raped by two airmen at an Air Force base in Germany in the 1960s. So you can't help wondering, did that have a role in setting him down this path? In the 1960s, he was in the Navy. When he came back, he went to college and studied police science. Remember, some of the police thought this guy is so criminally sophisticated, he may be a policeman. He studied police science in Visalia, California, where the ransacker became active. In 1970, he was engaged to a woman named Bonnie. But she called it off. She jilted him. And that would explain the I hate you, Bonnies, during his crimes. In 1973, he became a police officer in Exeter, California, just 10 miles from Visalia. He also got married to a woman named Sharon, and they went on to have three daughters. The couple separated in 1991, so he was with Sharon from 73 to 91, meaning he was a family man during all of his crimes as the ransacker, the rapist, and the killer. In 1974, When the Visalia Ransacker crime started, he would have been 28 years old. And then the last known Ransacker crime was in December of 75. In June of 76, the East Area Rapist crimes began east of Sacramento. And in August, so a couple months after those crimes began, he transferred from the Exeter uh, California Police Department to the Auburn California Police Department, which is in the greater Sacramento area. The last East Area Rapist crime then was in July of 79, the same month as the last 
East Area rapist crime, he was arrested for shoplifting. Mm. And what he was shoplifting is very interesting. He had on him a hammer and dog repellent. Now, <laughs> there are innocent uses for hammers, <laughs> but... And and there are innocent uses for dog repellent. And in fact, police officers often carry dog repellent, but they don't shoplift it because it's provided to them. So uh, it it's very plausible, at least to my mind, that he shoplifted the hammer and the dog repellent because he wanted to use them in a crime and didn't want there to be a sales receipt tying him to them. That would be at the criminally that, sophisticated part of that. Right. So at least that's a plausible theory. So as a result of being a police officer who gets arrested for shoplifting, he was fired from the Auburn Police Department, and he threatened his boss, and his boss thinks that he may have, like, been stalking his home and so forth. In any event, in October of 79, he was sentenced to six months probation for the shoplifting. At the beginning of that same month, October 79, he committed the first original Night Stalker crime down in Santa Barbara, where he attacked the couple that got away. We don't know what his employment history was in the 1980s, but we do know that he bought a house in Citrus Heights in Sacramento County in 1980. So that means he may have been commuting down to Southern California for all of the original Night Stalker crimes, uh, hundreds of miles, which would, again, indicate criminal sophistication. Also, it explained why there are so fewer of them, because he would have to, you know, leave for these extended trips to commit them. In 1990, he became a truck mechanic for Save Mart Supermarkets in Roseville, California, which is northeast of Sacramento. In 1991, he and his wife separated. And that same year, he called the previous victim who heard the children playing in the background. So they may have been his children or grand his grandchildren, I would guess, at that point. In 1996, and this has only just recently come to light in the last uh, few weeks, in 1996, he was also arrested uh, on charges of having a payment dispute with a gas station. And the way they got him, it was a sting operation. The police wanted to catch people who had outstanding warrants for their arrest. And what they did was they sent a letter to all these people saying, you have won Super Bowl tickets. Come down to this office to collect them. <laughs> and so the guys with warrants would come down to get their free Super Bowl tickets and be arrested instead. And so they got him. He'd apparently had a payment dispute where, it, it, with a gas station where he had claimed that the pump didn't fully fill his tank. And so he wasn't going to pay for all of the gas, even though the meter said he had fully filled his tank and the clerk behind the counter didn't speak English really well and he drove off without paying. And so that's what that was all about. So they actually had him under arrest for a few hours in 96, but they had no idea of these other crimes. So they ended up letting him go. He retired as a truck mechanic in 2017, and he was still living in Citrus Heights with a daughter and granddaughter when he was arrested a year ago in 2018. Neighbors report him being a very vigorous man, even though he's in his 70s, they would say, oh, yeah, we'd see him out doing stuff in his lawn, just moving around like a 50 year old. And that's interesting because at his first court appearance after he was arrested, he appeared to be very feeble and was in a wheelchair. And he was just like barely moving, barely talking. And his neighbors said, this is an act. This guy's way more vigorous than this. And he's apparently since since dropped the act, if that's what it was. They, the neighbors also say he would act cranky and he was prone to loud outbursts even when he was outside and alone. He'd be alone in his driveway and just be yelling. He also threatened to deliver to, quote, deliver a load of death, close quote, to a neighbor who had a barking dog. So he he had some conflicts with the neighbors. So that's some of the basics about Joseph D'Angelo. So what happens now? What is the what is the state of the of this case now? Well, he can't be charged with either the rapes or the ransackings because the statutes of limitations have run out. But he has been charged with 13 counts of murder. And because he tied people up, 
he's been charged with 13 counts of kidnapping. Uh, he's been assigned a public defender. And unfortunately, the trial may take 10 years to play out, apparently, the way these things go. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be watching it closely. I've, you know, as I indicated, I've been aware of this case since before he was caught and I kind of have a legal mind. And so I'm definitely going to be interested to see how this plays out in the courts. And I'll keep people here on the show updated when there's significant news. Okay, so this is that's all been sort of the reason perspective that we should like to go into. Mm -hmm. Is there a faith perspective that we can talk about? One, well, obviously these are these crimes were incredible sins, and we want to pray for the victims and for their families. Uh, we want to pray for we want to pray for justice for them. We want to pray for mercy for everybody who is a victim here. And we even want to pray for the salvation of Joseph D'Angelo. You know, he has an immortal soul too. Christ died for him. Uh, there's maybe another faith-related uh, lesson to this, is, which is the progression of sin. Small sins can lead to bigger sins. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if we're not careful, and that's why confession is such a great help, uh, it yep. helps us overcome that. So that, I just want to throw that one in there. Yeah. In addition to those aspects, there's also kind of an ethical aspect, which we can group under the faith perspective. Because this, the way they caught him, you know, had never been done before, but it has been done since. It, there have been bunches of other cases. By December of 2018, GEDmatch, that's the site they uploaded his DNA to, resulted in 28 other cold cases of murder and rape being solved. Already, just in those second half of the year, 28 more people wow. got, got caught by December. Uh, Parabon Nano Labs, which is another group uh, with DNA, uh, DNA database, has cooperated with law enforcement. And by November of last year, they had had 200 cases submitted to them, half of which produced suspects. Wow. So this is a very promising technique, but it raises privacy questions about if they're catching people not based on their DNA, but on the DNA of their relatives of over which they have no control. And there are questions about should these DNA databases be sharing their information with law enforcement in this way? I think it's inevitable they're going to do that. I, I, even if they need a legal fix to make that happen, I think it's inevitable. I have a question, though, about how this is going to affect D'Angelo's case, because there's a legal doctrine known as fruit of the poisonous tree. And basically, what the doctrine of fruit of the poisonous tree holds is that if you gain evidence on somebody improperly that leads you to someone, and then you get additional evidence about that person because of the initial improper gathering of evidence, you have to forget all of that later evidence. It's like the tree is poisoned. You cannot pick any of, any of its other fruit. So, for example, if you, police have to have probable cause uh, to, to enter your home without permission and search stuff. Well, let's suppose they didn't. Let's suppose they just broke into your home and found evidence of a crime and, that suggested you were, you know, had committed a series of crimes. And then based on what they found in your home, they go find other evidence. Well, according to the doctrine of fruit of the poisonous tree, since that initial break into your home was improper, they have they not only have to forget that evidence in court, they have to forget all the later evidence they learned. Even if it's rock solid, you totally did it. Right, because they do not want the courts do not want police being rewarded for initial improper evidence findings. So um, so th this has never been tested in court before the way they caught D'Angelo based on his relatives DNA. And so if I were D'Angelo's lawyer, I would seriously explore the possibility of filing a motion based on fruit of the poisonous tree to try to exclude all of the later evidence they got based on their initial uh, search of the GEDmatch database. And as part of that, they used a fake name for his profile because you can't just upload anonymous DNA into a database. So they created a fake profile. Uh, in order to upload his DNA in the first place. And if I was his lawyer, I would say that was improper. And so 
it will be interesting to see how fruit of the poisonous tree plays out in this case. Now, for people who want to see D'Angelo convicted, and based on the evidence, it seems like he's the guy, so I that's that's my inclination. There is an exception to fruit of the poisonous tree if it's attenuated. And there so you can't if if there's some factor that attenuates the situation, you can then later bring in this other evidence. So there is a way, even if the initial finding is ruled improper, there can be ways of bringing in this additional evidence. Ultimately, though, I suspect given the guy's 73, and this case is likely to take 10 years, and given the gravity of the crimes and the uh, the motivation of the prosecutors to to provide some kind of justice in this case, I think he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. And he might even have the death penalty because special circumstances apply in some of these cases. And California does have a death penalty, but he's given his age. I suspect he may die before the death penalty could be administered. And in in any event, I don't think he's going to be walking the streets again. Uh, That's just my guess. Also, long term, even if fruit of the poisonous tree could be used as a defense in this case, in the future, nobody who leaves DNA at a major crime scene is going to be able to hide forever because we're going to have the DNA of the population too well mapped for people to hide indefinitely. So I think this is a major new tool for law enforcement. This is going to be interesting to see how uh, how that plays out. Um, yeah, one of the things I was thinking with the fruit of the poisonous tree was just even the fact that they improperly did not dispose of the DNA from those earlier cases, that could be enough for the his defense lawyer to file a motion to exclude it, I guess. They could argue, although I don't know that that would happen because there's not, as far as I'm aware, a, a state mandate to throw the, throw the evidence away after okay. the statute of limitations has expired. It's just departmental policy to do that to save space. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, that's better then. All right. So what is what is the bottom line on this case of the the Golden State Killer? Well, at least at this time, based on what the authorities are saying, it looks like we've caught the Golden State Killer. He will face criminal justice and law enforcement has a powerful new tool that, while it raises some ethical concerns, will likely lead to more and more accurate convictions of criminals in the future. So, Jimmy, I want to sort of ask you, given the ethical concerns about DNA databases, how do you feel about using some of these genealogical systems with your DNA, uploading it? What, 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 what would be your personal preference for doing it or not doing it? In terms of submitting my own DNA or yeah. in terms of... Say, say you wanted to do some uh, DNA research, find out more about your background, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Would you upload your DNA to one of these private DNA databases? Well, I, I, my concern... I, I'm not a serial killer or a rapist, and I don't believe any of my relatives are either. So I wouldn't refuse to do so on those grounds. I would have other concerns about would insurance companies ever get access to these things and say, "Ooh, you've got a marker to potentially get this this disease when you're old. We're going to exclude coverage for that or something like that. Now, that's a that's a hypothetical risk. I, I don't know that it would deter me. But it's something to think about. Interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, we, all, we, we should all be very uh, thoughtful before we, we do these things. It's, it's an interesting question. to, And maybe we'll talk about it on Secrets of Technology, our, one of our other podcasts on SQPN. Oh, I was going to say, in fact, what we just talked about was something that you might want to consider for Secrets of Technology. Yeah, definitely. So uh, what further resources can we offer folks who want to find out more about the, this case? Well, in the show notes, we'll have links to Wikipedia's article on the Golden State Killer, also Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and the audio book, Evil Has a Name, which so and those two really are kind of the the two best things you want to you want to hear about this. Um, Also, there's an Amazon Prime documentary series uh, called The Golden State Killer. It's not over. This was made before they caught him. So it won't have information about D'Angelo, but it does have information about how the case progressed. And you get to see, you know, video of the places and everything where all this happened. There is on YouTube the FBI's recording of the phone message that he left this woman. Uh, I also will have a link to the the GEDmatch website where they caught him. 
a link to uh, Wikipedia's article on Fruit of the Poisonous Tree, if you want to read about that. Also, there are some news reports. One is a, a report, a video report on his arrest. There's also one where a friend and coworker of his is interviewed, and it's really kind of fascinating to to hear what the coworker has to say because the coworker had no idea, you know, that this is who he was. But then in hindsight, he's looking back and saying, well, hmm, were there clues here? Also, his former wife has made a statement. Uh, it's very brief. She just says, I had no idea. I, you know, my prayers are for all the victims and please don't bang down my door with news reporters. Right. But you can read uh, her statement. And then there's also, since this just came out recently, the news of his 1996 arrest and release. I'll have a link to a news article on that as well. Great. Thank you. So that's uh, our our mystery for this week. Let's move on to mysterious feedback for uh, topics we've talked about previously. Uh, on the Phoenix Lights episode, Lawrence Steiner uh, sent uh, some feedback using the hashtag mysterious feedback on Twitter. And thank you very much for doing that, Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence says, thanks, Dom and Jimmy, for another great episode. Looking at the pictures of the first event reminded me the shape in, of the shape and lights of the Solar Impulse aircraft. The first known prototype of that kind of aircraft came out at least 10 years after the Arizona event. However, this would fit a lot of the data, low speed, low noise, kind of following the wind direction. Could this be an early prototype of the same kind? Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, what's the Solar Impulse aircraft, you know? Yeah, it's a, and there's an article about it on Wikipedia if you want to look it up. It's a prototype aircraft that was designed to fly extended distances based on solar power. So it had like its upper wings and its surface was uh, covered with solar cells to extract power from sunlight. And then it had batteries, it had lithium ion batteries that could keep it flying at night. And it it does look kind of similar uh, in some ways, or at least some of the pictures I've seen of it at night do seem to have kind of a flying V shape with wing uh, with lights on it. It the solar impulse aircraft though was written or was um, built by private concerns. These guys wanted to demonstrate, like, hey, we could make ecologically sound aircraft. It's not impossible that the government could do something similar. Really, though. There are lots of planes or lots of aircraft that potentially have a V shape with lights on them. So I don't know if I don't know if there's a reason to think it was specifically an earlier version of something powered by solar cells. It, it may have might have had other other another power source. It also would have we'd also have questions of why whoever built this thing, why is it being flown over Phoenix in this way? because it's in violation of airspace laws and causing a, a significant danger. And so secretively. And yeah. uh, and it would be, again, the, the Phoenix Lights, whatever uh, it was, was huge, uh, much bigger than, than a regular aircraft. Right. So and, uh, some more feedback on that episode. BP26P writes on YouTube, there are four lights. You have to imagine Patrick Stewart, the actor, uh, saying that. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are five. Are, are you quite sure? I don't understand how you can be so mistaken. <laughs> so, and then Flying Car 100 on YouTube writes, could it have been drones or did drones not exist then? I find it fascinating that someone using the handle Flying Car asks this question. <laughs> the, it, it, well, it could have been drones. I mean, a drone is just an unmanned aerial vehicle. And we've had drone technology for way longer than people think. In fact, the first unmanned aerial vehicle was actually a balloon that was used in the 1800s. And as early as World War I, so early 1900s, we had drone airplanes uh, that could be flown remotely. And so we've had drone technology for a long time. The question of is was there a pilot up in whatever appeared over Phoenix or was it being driven remotely is kind of a separate question. There might have been, there might not have been. So it could have been a drone. It could have been piloted. The question is, what kind of craft produced this? It could have been a formation. If it were today, it could have been a formation of drones, I suppose. Yeah. Although even even drones, ones big enough to be seen from the ground, will make noise. So, uh, and then the other feedback, Rick writes on Facebook, uh, another in very interesting discussion 
but I need to say that blimps do not fly silently. They have a propeller to push them along. I've had yep. multiple blimp flyovers at my house, both Goodyear and MetLife, and I could hear them inside the house, and neither was directly over the house, which he, he does make a good point, I have to say. Yeah, indeed. So that's the feedback. Thank you for sending that, folks. Uh, mysterious headlines, Jimmy. Do you have any mysterious headlines for us this week? Just a couple, and they're both tied into our theme this week of catching the Golden State Killer, The but about a different famous serial murderer, Jack the Ripper. Because people have wondered, is there some way we could use DNA technology to find Jack the Ripper? And the claim is, uh, or a recent claim, is that that has now been done. One of Jack the Ripper's victims had a shawl that some scientists claim they got DNA from that based on a relative, again, there's the same pattern, based on a relative pointed to Jack the Ripper being a Polish barber named Aaron Kosminski, who was, in fact, one of the suspects at the time. So I'll have an art, a link to that article. But don't be too quick to accept the article at face value because there are significant criticisms of this study. And so I have a link to another uh, article called that's headlined Archaeological Geneticists Called Jack the, Re-N-A, Jack the Ripper DNA Study unpublishable nonsense. <laughs> and Tell us how you so, really feel. <laughs> yeah. So so there's there's a dispute over whether this is an accurate study, uh, whether the the shawl was properly handled because they apparently it was there are pictures of it like being held by relatives of people. It's like, well, maybe the DNA came from them when they handled it without gloves. Right. So uh, so there are significant questions about this, but it does tie into the same theme of people using this DNA relative matching stuff to try to identify cold case uh, perpetrators. Excellent. Well, we can hope we we find answers to many of these uh, crimes that are still mysteries. That would be great. So before we finish out, I I do want to have a little bit of a business. I want to mentioned the uh, podcast that you all might be interested in and uh, it's on the our sqpn network jimmy aiken's mysterious world is part of the sqpn podcast network uh, another one of our shows it's a relatively new show and we think that you might be interested in it it's called catholics of oz it's three australians who are uh, I'm related guessing they're catholic and from oz yes they are aussie catholics who get together every we have a like the, the podcast comes out every other week and they talk about things of interest to uh, both Australians, uh, Catholics, but but have a wider audience as well. Uh, recently, they talked about this this instance of someone giving a tip at a restaurant in the United States, but it turns out it wasn't a tip, but it was a religious tract made to look like uh, American money. And so they Ooh. were discussing this. Is that good evangelization? Spoilers, <laughs> it isn't. No. <laughs> but also uh, they discussing the whole concept of tipping, which is somewhat of a uniquely American concept. And so it's somewhat foreign to them. And then they also were discussing a campaign at an at a Australian supermarket chain where they talked about their products as being perfect for Lent. And evidently everything that they sell is perfect for Lent, including the meat department, the dog food, <laughs> the toiletries, everything is perfect for Lent. But uh, it's a it's a very interesting discussion that they have. They talk about movies and they have an apps of the week that they talk about, that sort of stuff. So a lot of fun. Please give it a try. Go to sqpn.com slash Oz, download an episode and check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. I know I do. I always have fun when I listen to it as I edit it uh, because uh, it's so good. And I know you'll enjoy it. So uh, before we finish out, we want to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, and especially our patrons who make this show possible. Today, we're going to thank by name Dana C., George H., Martin P., Jonathan B., and Deborah F. Through their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give, they make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows we do at SQPN. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think about this discussion of how we caught the Golden State Killer, about using DNA evidence uh, through relative matching? Uh, Let us know. Send us some feedback. You can go to sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leave us feedback there. You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet 
to at mys underscore world or use the hashtag of hashtag mysterious feedback remember to like this episode on our facebook page retweet it on twitter and spread the news about the podcast we greatly appreciate how much you guys have been doing to let everyone know about the mysterious world podcast it's been going so great to see the audience grow so you can find the links to our resources uh, that jimmy has shared on our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious until next time jimmy aiken thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world thank you dom and once again i'm dom bettinelli thank you for listening to jimmy aiken's mysterious world on starquest <laughs>